Welcome to Pilot Boys, episode 132. Today, we are talking about the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk. And <laughs> we're talking about the NBA playoffs and we're talking about the NFL draft. So we got a lot on our topic list. Stay tuned. Uh, buckle up your seatbelts. Put your trade tables up. The Pilot Boys are about to take off. Let's go. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you will get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. All right, V. Without further ado, I think we gotta we gotta do our people a favor and start at the topic that everybody's talking about this week: the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk. Um, this is something that was building for a few weeks in the rumor mill. Um, we had a lot of friends in in the tech world as well, um, feeling pretty strongly that this was going to happen. And uh, it happened. I, I believe it was yesterday at the time of us recording this, you know, a few days before you're listening to this episode. And uh, it was about $44 billion. And it was Elon, essentially, uh, Morgan Stanley hopped in, a few other private financiers. And uh, they're, they not only bought out every shareholder, but they're taking the company public, which, you know, really dramatic. Private, private, private. Private, thank you. Yeah. Which really dramatically changes um, what can happen really with the platform and the incentives behind running it so this will be you know really a new beginning uh, for the platform of twitter yeah it's interesting uh the whole story is interesting elon is a lightning rod um you know whether you like him dislike him whatever um he is a guy who puts his money where his mouth is and he 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 didn't he didn't uh he didn't he didn't write a check he couldn't cash here, right? So uh, he made it happen. He he had his he was outspoken about his thoughts on freedom of speech. Uh, he made this deal happen. So at the end of the day, he believed in this and he put his money up and his friends' money up, and believes that on principles that he can not only this isn't just about freedom of speech. He believes there's value that he can exploit from this company, um, not only for himself but or his shareholders and his friends who are financing this through debt for a big portion of this through debt financing. Um, with that said, it is an interesting, <laughs> what's so interesting about this is the, the contrast in what Elon is saying about when it comes to Twitter, that he is a pure advocate for free speech, um, that he is an advocate for dis, you know dissension and conversation. Um, but there is a history at Tesla itself that, the opposite is true, that he does not like his employees having too much freedom of speech and that he is a dictator. And it's just funny how in different business interests, um, he can he can look at the world from two different perspectives. And that's something that, that I find very intriguing, like kind of the contradictions within people. What are your kind of thoughts on, on that aspect of it? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely interesting. I think you know, I, I heard this quote about ego, uh, that ego is you becoming who you need to be based on the context of the situation. And yeah. I think different different entities, different organizations, different roles in society require you to operate in different ways. And, uh, you know, I think especially with Twitter, <clears throat> the thing that I was really watching and, you know, one of the reasons I got off of it, now I'm back on. If you're interested, it's at Partha Chirps and I am chirping. I'm talking a lot of trash. Um, but, uh, it, 
the reason I had gotten off was because of how negative the environment had become and how it just kind of felt, you know, people were screaming at each other. They weren't really having conversations. It just didn't really feel that productive. And, uh, you know, as, as I've really observed it a lot more over the recent like week and a half since I got back on, it's been really different than how it was when I initially left in that, you know, I, I don't feel like the power of being able to cancel somebody is there as strongly as it used to be. And I think that's just kind of a societal thing. I think we all have kind of gotten a little bit used to how people can be very polarizing when they speak. And when I look on there, I've also started to see kind of a clear divide in the environment between two different sides of the platform. One side that feels that Elon is this very evil person who's coming in to control the platform. And, you know, that side would would essentially advocate like, hey, you know, he's too wealthy, he's too powerful. And ironically, you know, I'll point out ironies on both sides. Ironically, the loudest voice that I see on that side is Senator Warren, who, you know, I, I actually tweeted at her tweet about Elon's got too money, too much money. This is why we need a wealth tax. I responded and said, how about we start with, you know, looking at Pelosi's trading first, you know what I mean? Before we start pointing at private citizens. Um, I just find it hypocritical that Congress is, you know, they don't like when other people make money. And then you flip it and you look at, um, you know, the very conservative side of Twitter. And that can be where a lot of reason gets lost for the sake of wanting control a totally different way. So that's where folks are like very, very deep Trump worshipers, very, very deep in terms of they stick to a worldview. They're very rigid on it and they're not really willing to shift. Um, But I do think the most important thing that's happening right now is that people who are exposed to both sides are seeing, okay, it's kind of pointless to be incredibly strong with either perspective. Because if you feel like you could bet your life on one view, and someone else feels like they could bet their life on another view, I'm going to go ahead and bet both of you are wrong, right? Because I just don't feel like two extremes like that um, can either be right, you know? So I think what's interesting is you get this juxtaposition of so many different strong worldviews side by side in your feed, and you get the opportunity to take a step back and and just see the thing that we talk about on this podcast, which is like the manipulation of government and media, and you know the the folks who have a lot of leverage on these situations to keep you arguing, to keep you on one side or the other, missing the point that yeah I. For me, the big thing is two two bullet points. One, BlackRock is buying all the single family houses in the U.S. And two, Bill Gates is buying all the farmland in the U.S. Like all of your land is getting slowly taken away from you while you're arguing about bullshit. And to me, that's like the exciting part of Twitter is watching people slowly waking up to that reality. Yeah, I mean, Twitter's an interesting place. It's a, it's um, it's a haven for distractions. Right. The more time you spend generally talking about problems um, and, and lending your voice to problems, the less time you're spending trying to fix them. Um, I understand also the power of a platform and how it makes individuals feel if you have a following of 50,000, 100,000 million followers to feel, to get this false position that your voice really matters a whole lot. Um, and that's what the reward system is for humans psychologically is the the ego. Like you said, that you what you said, a healthy ego, you mentioned a healthy ego is adjusting to whatever position you need to take in the environment that you're in. An unhealthy ego is feeding your own need 
um, for people to to feel like they need to listen to you. Um, and I also think there's a there's generally what Twitter and all of the social media is specifically in America is a reflection on what's happening in our society overall. The traditional power structures, the traditional powers that be, you know, whether you want to talk from socioeconomics, race, everything, are seeing a degradation in their power and their position, which is kind of the healthy aspect of what the freedom of social social media and internet has done is it has allowed people who traditionally didn't have power to create power, specifically in the Asian American community through the tech tech world. It has opened up a significant amount of power. Um, that we did not have um, before the tech revolution. Um, but I think, you know, when it comes to freedom of speech, and this is an important point that I want to make, which is, you know, you do have the right to freedom of speech. That is a fundamental right of being American, you know. And I don't want to credit myself but for this thought, but it's a thought that I've had internally that I saw um, another great Adam, Adam Grant um, quote who I encourage everyone to follow. Um, he said, essentially, you have the right to free speech, but you also have the freedom to stay silent when you know you have an ignorant opinion mm -hmm. or a cruel thought, right? Like, if you know what you're doing, you know, when you tweet out something that you're trying, when you're trying to do harm to someone else, that's not freedom of speech. That is the use of freedom of speech to destroy another human being, another culture, whatever it is that you're attacking due to your own personal insecurity. And it's going to be interesting to see how Elon Musk, who I am not on either of the polar sides with on this. I find myself in the middle. I, I have respect for him, but I also know he is who he is, which is a narcissist, right? And he, and it's, you can say, you can say that's healthy, unhealthy, but he wouldn't be in the position that he's in or solve the problems that he solved if he didn't have some degree of unwavering belief in himself, right? Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how he utilizes his power and his voice to steer this platform because one of the things that I like him hearing him say is that we're going to get these bots out of this system because a lot of those harmful tweets that we're hearing aren't coming from real people. They are systems that know and have a pulse on the psychology of human beings, and they're bots. They're automated. So they tweet out things that fan the flames of the, the divides in America. And as you said, keep this kind of like distraction and argument going. And I'm fascinated to see how he he counters that. It's an important point that he's made that I think anybody who understands freedom of speech should look at it and say, this is a good thing. That element of it is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a really good point. The technical elements of Twitter that have caused a lot of issue for the team. These are things that I think anybody who's familiar with Elon's work can feel confident he'll be able to address and successfully solve within a very reasonable time frame. He's demonstrated the ability to do things that have never been done before in very short time frames. So, you know, bots probably will be gone very soon. A lot of the uh, the mechanisms uh, in that. So, like, I'll, I'll point out one uh, stat I, or one case I read, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard uh, trial. There's been a ton of messages, very, very pro Amber Heard that have been proven now to almost entirely be bots. 
and mm-hmm. interesting because it almost indicates whether it's Russian, whether it's another country, whether it's somebody who just is, you know, a malfeasant in the world, um, seems to be taking a pulse on which way people are going and trying to create contrasting opinions to create conflict, exactly to your point, Pete. And I think when you eliminate those types of notions, you really do get to Twitter's purpose, which has been said a lot recently. It's serving as a digital town square, a place yep. where you can have conversation about issues, speak about what is what you feel is right and what you feel is wrong. And I think you know the biggest thing that um, I'm seeing less and less on Twitter now versus when I was on it before is like somebody who tweets an opinion and then the next line they write a judgment. So it's like yep. Elon is doing this shameful. You know what I mean? It's like, or like crooked or evil. And it's like, what's the point? You know what I mean? Like, what's the point of like slapping that, like really firing upward on it? And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've definitely played with it for sure. in my tweets to see, you know, does one way or another, like pick up resonance. And what I found is no, that, that style in which I tweet, it just seems like it's, it's too, too neutral for people to give a shit about but uh, in in general, it's like the, the the accounts that have huge followings have thrived on making these very judgment oriented statements in in their messaging. And I think whenever you're elevating using judgment, you really got to look in the mirror. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, I've got kind of two final thoughts on this. It is very important for us to underline the fact that he is taking this private too, in terms of how that can aid kind of his, his goals for the medium, right? Because when you are a public company, in a lot of ways, you give up control um, of how you, how you run your business. And you do have to do certain things to maximize shareholder value that you don't have to do when you're private. One of the best examples of this is what happened with Michael Dell and Dell Computer Corporation. When he took the company private, a lot of the issues that they were facing, Dell was starting to struggle as a company. He took the company private, was able to fix a lot of the issues, and now as a private company, Dell is thriving again. Um, And and I think there's that same opportunity, specifically with Twitter, Twitter, which is, I think it underlies an even more importance to the idea of taking it private. It gives you more control to dictate how the platform is utilized, which I think is a powerful thing that that on the surface is just like, oh, it's taking it private. But I think from a philosophical standpoint, it is very important for Twitter um, to go private here in this scenario. Correct, correct. And on top of giving Elon a lot more control and power in that situation to make the changes needed in a more rapid way, it changes the incentive structure. Um, one of the things that's very common, especially in tech startups, is everything is put to the wayside to grow corporate value and get the thing public and IPO'd. And usually what you have is really, really, you know, shoddy systems when you have a public company. And that's the reason why a lot of tech companies, when they go public, really, really struggle with a lot of the issues that these companies face um, because they're just not thought all the way through. They were just rapidly grown in user base. They get the metrics to where they want them to be so they can trade well and the investors want to cash out and move on to their next thing. That's just the nature of the beast there. And so this this kind of second phase that's happening of taking these companies back private represents, I think, a shift in society 
from just trying to hit the check marks of getting the job done to actually doing it right. And I think, you know, if more companies go slower and more companies take their time to really do a good job in building what they're building, then first of all, I don't think companies would need to be taken private after they go public. But second of all, I think that society would be a lot better for it. And so anytime you have somebody who could use their wealth for a million things, choose to take something that is impacting society. I think undebatably Twitter has been a negative in our society over the last you know decade or so. To, to take your personal wealth and to set out to try and fix the problem, I think that's commendable. I think it's awesome. I think if anybody is thinking about what to do with their wealth, I think the question is not how do I make it bigger? The question is how do I use it to serve society? Yep. And if you are a user, and this will be my final thought on this, um, and it's a thought that I had this morning, if you are a user of Twitter or any platform, you've got two choices every day that you wake up. You know, you can either use the platform to inspire and cultivate the people around you, or you can use it to destroy, you know, and discourage the world around you. So you have to choose your words and your actions quite carefully, and you can and just understand that there is an impact by that choice that you make on yourself. It's not just for, about the, the message that you're sending out. It's also about the impact that you're having on your own psychology by making either of those two choices. Yeah, absolutely. You know, on that note, uh, we'll move things forward. Uh, last night we saw what I did not expect to see, which was the Brooklyn Nets getting swept by the Celtics. First of all, you got to give major credit to the Celtics. They were unbelievable through the whole series. Watching them play defense is just, you could see Brooklyn was just straight outmatched the entire series from a size, physicality, and athleticism perspective. And when you have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown making shots the way that they did, they looked practically unbeatable. And it looks like there's a reason why they're the two seed in the East, especially where, um, you know, you have Milwaukee with the injury to Chris Middleton. He might be out for the entire playoffs. You have kind of a softened field on both sides with the injury to Devin Booker on the Suns. Um, I was I was genuinely impressed by the Celtics, and I think they might have a run in them, B. I mean, they've been the best team in, since the All-Star All -Star break. Don't quote me on this. I believe either they're 21-5 and five or 26-5. and five. So they've been the best team in the NBA since uh, the All-Star break. And I think also there's an underlying thing here too, which is – you know, a conversation we've had, right? And I think the conversation here is around Brad Stevens, who coached this team um, for several years, um, but I think realized that the team needed a different voice for that team to go to the next level. He stepped aside, went to the front office, hired um, probably the best the best coaching hire of the offseason, yeah. um, who has added a different mentality and a different layer to this Boston team, which has been to toughen them up, you know, in a league that is full of how good are you offensively? You can see fundamentally that the Boston Celtics have become and focused much more on defense. Marcus Smart, obviously one defensive player of the year, but if you look at the intensity with which J Jason Tatum plays on both sides of the floor, how hard he rebounds, how hard he plays every single play, you can see that that is a response to the philosophical change. And it underlies an important point, right, which is you need to know when you've 
done what you can and it's time to let someone else kind of take take lead still be a part of the process and i think that you know celtics fans and just fans in general cultures in general can look at this example of the boston celtics and say hey you know this is a great example of how to run an organization and grow and develop um the right way because i think jason tatum now that's inarguably is showing now that he's one of the top five players in the nba yeah i i couldn't agree more and i think uh to your point um the the new celtics coach i believe his name is e-day e-day um absolutely balling out as a coach uh, the toughness of the organization is is up significantly, and it reminds me, not all the way, but it's it's moving in the direction of what the Celtics used to be from an identity standpoint, which was the team that you really didn't want to play because of how physical that they were going to take the game. And uh, they have the athleticism for it. They have the size for it. They have the roster for it. And uh, I got to say, I've, I've been really, really impressed with Al, Al Horford as well, who is, I believe, 35 now, really, really has... Um, been in the league for a while and is playing some really, really tough basketball and playing a critical role in the team from a rebounding perspective, from a toughness perspective on defense. And, uh, you know, every single player there is making a huge impact every time they step on the court. Um, that's been amazing. And, you know, if I'm going to switch it to the other side, um, we're watching the Suns who came in, you know, I thought with that toughness attitude, getting out toughed by the Pelicans on the other side as well. Uh, Pelicans missing Zion, the Suns missing Devin Booker. In my eyes, a pretty even match resulting in that um, loss. And uh, you're just seeing the Suns not being able to put it together. The Pelicans came back from being down 2-0. And uh, the standout to me is this guy, uh, Jose uh, Alvarez, who actually went to Georgia Tech. He's a small, small point guard who made a name this season for kind of hiding next to the bench unit whenever the other team was inbounding, then running back and stealing it from behind the point guard who just got the ball back. And listening to him mic'd up, seeing the toughness, seeing the entire organization step up, and especially Brandon Ingram, who I never I never thought I would see play with this intensity, um, come with the fire. It's just, it's honestly inspiring whenever you get to see this, this passing of the torch and the new generation of guys say, hey, this is my time, I'm going to take it. Yeah, you're seeing it across the NBA. The best series that we're watching is the Minnesota-Memphis series. And it reminds me of how the series used to be. You know, when I first fell in love with the game of basketball in, in the NBA in the 90s, right? These teams didn't don't like each other. They compete with each other. It's healthy, right? It's not like they they it's an unhealthy competition. But seeing that and then seeing the Celtics, you know, and then seeing the transition, um, you know, it's it's it makes you happy to see. It's unfortunate the Suns lost Devin Booker. The other thing with the Pelicans, you know, and I wish the Sixers would have made this trade. Um, we're really seeing the overall value of a CJ McCollum. Uh, Dame Willard got a lot of the credit for the culture in Portland, but he was always the first to say that CJ was just as important part of a piece. Um, and it seems like that piece, getting that veteran um, with the Pelicans was was the best move that they could have made because it's uplifted the play of every single player in the organization. And you mentioned the same with Al Horford. You know, sometimes a player's value isn't just what they can offer in terms of the stat sheet. It's also what they can offer 
your culture. And then on the flip side of it, you know, we have to talk about Brooklyn getting swept. They were the favorite to win the finals uh, at the start of the season. Um, series of errors, you know, um, you can see some accountability, obviously, from Kyrie Irving saying, hey, look, the fact that I didn't play, the fact that we didn't play as a team, and this team on the opposite side, Boston, has been gelling and playing and building chemistry is valuable. And with that said, you know, the the biggest issue that the Nets have is I think they made a mistake with what they saw from Ben Simmons, only looking at the talent that he offers versus the fact that this guy has shown that he's not a great competitor, that he doesn't have the mental makeup to care. Like you show up and you give your team 10 minutes. Uh, he was going to play, then they got down 3-0, and now was, all of a sudden he doesn't want to play anymore. Having that type of person in your culture, regardless of their ceiling and their talent, actually hurts your organization more than it helps it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, Ben Simmons has been an interesting narrative through this whole thing because he could have he could have just worn the team warm-up sweats and sat on the sideline, but he chose to wear this orange, ridiculous outfit that drew all the attention to him, right? And yeah. the guy who's claiming mental health to get his paychecks from Philly, claiming claiming all these injuries to get, you know, to continue to be able to stay in the league. But does he even want to play the game? And, you know, I heard uh, Charles Barkley say it on the broadcast. Come out, play a few minutes. If it doesn't go well, we'll say, hey, at least you tried. Keep on trying. Keep getting better. You know, we believe in you. Right. But if you're not even going to put the effort out there, I think it, it brings a totally different perception, which is that, um, you know, the general take, I think, on Ben Simmons right now is that people don't feel like he actually wants to play the game of basketball. People feel like he's just waiting to collect whatever checks he can and trying to get out of there. And it's, it's honestly weird. This is a guy who, you know, came into the league expected to be one of the one of the greatest stars, you know, same build as LeBron. There was a lot of narrative that he was going to take over and become that good. And now we're seeing him afraid. To even play, right? And I think, you know, and, and commentary on this is interesting. I think it would be a wise and dynamic move for Rich Paul to say, to, 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 to sever his relationship with Ben Simmons. Because if you look at what Clutch represents, what every other guy on their roster represents and what Rich Paul represents, it's not this. And I think you cannot, there's only so much, I, I respect the loyalty that he's showing Ben Simmons as his agent and staying in his corner. But at a certain point, you have to decide, what does my brand represent? What does the culture of Clutch represent? And quite frankly, this guy isn't representative of what um, LeBron, Rich, any of these guys represent. Especially if you got to fly to New York after this dude says he's not going to play this game, when it was, you know, told. Uh, to my understanding, it was it was Ben Simmons' team that leaked that he was going to play on Monday, not the Nets. And so you got to fly to now do damage control, sit with the front office last minute, like on the weekend. Nobody wants to be doing that, you know. Yeah. So if you're Rich Paul, I'm sure you're frustrated in this scenario. And yeah. You, again, whatever Ben Simmons is going through. Hopefully he gets through it. Hopefully he comes out a better person for it. But uh, I think from the business standpoint, this is a player that as of now has not shown any character trait that makes you want want him on your team. 100%. 100%. You know, on, the, 
on the on the other side of that trade that went down, you've got the 76ers. And uh, it was interesting last night. They the 76ers have lost. They were up 3-0, lost two in a row now to Toronto. Um, Toronto is just playing inspired basketball all of a sudden. Uh, they were really keeled over the first couple games of the series. And uh, you called it before, V, but we, we saw that James Harden really hasn't been the same player this year that he was a couple years ago. And uh, even uh, Joel Embiid said last night in his presser that uh, it was on Doc to sit down and talk to James and say, hey, man, like we need you to actually, you know, show up here and, and put up some baskets. And uh, I just think it's a it's an interesting, interesting era because I think Joel did not know kind of what he was getting, but he went from one teammate to another and no disrespect to James Harden, who has proven, you know, he's he's an amazing talent, but he may not be that talent anymore. And he may have some trouble being honest about it with his teammates. Yeah, I mean, reality is reality, and you, regardless of how much you like or dislike a person, um, your resume and your results speak for themselves. James Harden has been the highest-paid player in the NBA over the last few years, and he doesn't play like the best player in the NBA in the most important moments, which is the playoffs, you know, and he hasn't done it for years. You know, he didn't do it in Houston when he had the opportunity when when Chris Paul went down and now Joel Embiid goes down with an injury you are the highest paid player in the NBA and you only shoot 11 shots you have four points um, early on and you finish the game with 16 points and six turnovers that's unacceptable when you are paid to be the best player in the entire league yeah absolutely and then you know, on, on the flip, I do have to shout out Scotty Barnes from Toronto, who won Rookie of the Year recently. Unbelievable player. Definitely, definitely a standout on that team. And Toronto's almost showing that same kind of fire that uh, we saw from Boston. Like, it's it's coming late, yeah, obviously. And they, they, they lost their all-star point guard in Fred Van Vliet. Um, and it's a credit to Nick Nurse and the culture in Toronto. We start, we saw it when they won the championship. Obviously, they don't have Kawhi Leonard anymore. But what you get from that Toronto organization and why they're so easy to root for is they have built a culture and they know what players to pick, you know. Um, and, and they may not win, and they may not win the championship every year. But what you admire is a team that competes, you know. They're in the playoffs and they compete. And now it's 3-2, and it's going back to Toronto, which is a really tough place to play. And we'll see what Doc and the 76ers team is, is made of because, honestly, if they lose this 3-0 series lead, and no, I like Doc, I love Doc as a person, but he shouldn't be coaching in the NBA anymore. Yeah, I think that's, that's the primary criticism. I saw some hilarious <laughs> memes of, you know, nobody's ever – uh, lost a 3-0 lead, and then it's Doc saying, you know, get out of my way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the criticism on him is that he, he usually doesn't close it out. He, his teams usually choke. And so will they choke the greatest choke of all time? We will definitely find out. And I, I would be, you know, remiss if I didn't call out probably the, the dogfight that's happening down south right now, Atlanta versus Miami, the Heat and the Hawks. That is a amazing series it's just such a great example of physicality toughness attitude you know the right yeah. you know what i mean it's a it's amazing i mean everybody needs well, everybody in the east needs to get out of the way and just 
let Miami and Boston um, duke it out. No disrespect to the the Bucks, but they lost Chris Middleton. I would put the Bucks right there, but it's the same thing. These are the teams that care about both sides of the of the floor. If you saw what Miami, if you see what Miami is doing to slow down Trey Young, like that has to be frustrating. Every angle, he's got a different defender, different layers. Like they are defending him like like a junkyard dog. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's it's amazing, and every single player is committed to it at every level, and it's it's frustrating him. That's why it's three one now. But the, the Hawks, despite that, compete in every game and and play hard. You know. Yeah. And I gotta say, Miami is just the better team. Yeah. And Jimmy Butler gets a lot of heat, uh, no pun intended, for his his intensity. And during the regular season, we've definitely seen that rub people the wrong way. His teammates, his coaches, the organization. We even saw about a month ago him getting into a pretty pretty loud shouting match with Spo in the middle of a game during a timeout. And uh, that intensity is, at the end of the day, that's why you want it. And you see it now in the playoffs. You see that intensity elevating on defense and on offense. I mean, that's the kind of player you want on your team during these moments. 100%. 100%. I mean, the playoffs continue to be exciting. Looking forward to seeing how this thing continues to play out. We'll have a lot to talk about over the next couple of weeks. As you can see, we've been able to talk NBA for, for quite a while now. Um, but there's also a, a big event happening uh, this Thursday, um, which is um, the NFL draft. This time in Las Vegas, we were in Vegas last week pretty fascinated and amazed by the fact that they set the stage in the middle of the famous um, Bellagio fountains. That's going to be cool to watch when it happens. But, you know, whenever these drafts happen, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty cool to see everything around it. Like these players have worked their whole lives to have this moment. You get to interact and see their families and the, the pride that their families have in them. They're always great moments to just what well, it's not a game, but these moments and these things are always great. Um, just great to watch, watch stories yeah. and, and to see the transition from hard work to, you know, essentially climbing the mountain and getting and, and crossing that line to the summit. Completely agree. And we're probably going to see a few of our Ohio state guys go in the first round as well. Definitely Wilson and Olave potentially, um, um, is it Fleming was the third one that's being called out up there? Uh, I am not quite sure who the third first rounder will be, but you know we have we have a few offensive linemen in the draft. I mean, the truth is that we'll have multiple players in the first few rounds, and we will continue to lead um, lead all colleges and players drafted. Um, that cushion should get even wider um, this year. Um, it just goes to credit the development of the in the Ohio State system specifically what's amazing um, is to see how much of a transition with Olave and Garrett Wilson the type we've had great receivers come out of Ohio State but there's a culture now that if you are one of the top receivers that Ohio State is the place to go um, the other interesting storyline in this draft specifically is the belief that there's a lack of a true star QB in this draft. And again, there's always interesting storylines and it's a little frustrating. I do think Malik Willis is, you know, worthy of, of 
taking the same shot that a a a a Josh Allen um, or other you know Josh Allen a um, Joe Flacco have you know other quarterbacks from smaller schools that show the talent. It seems like they get elevated, but again, in this situation, you know, quite frankly, because um, he is um, he is a black quarterback, isn't necessarily getting the fanfare um, that other quarterbacks who come from small schools that put up the type of numbers and stats that he does typically get. They get the benefit of the doubt, but it's being used as a knock against him. I hope Carolina takes him at six and develops him, um, and he becomes a star in the league. Once again, you know, these situations, you can either look at them negatively or you can continue. And the progress that's been made in the NFL for black QBs has been dramatic. Again, he's got another opportunity here um, to prove people wrong um, once again. Yeah, and I think, you know, if it, if it were me, I'd prefer to be the underdog than the highly touted recruit because it gives you something to work for. But when you yeah. already start at the top in the media cycle and the narrative, there's a lot less room for error, a lot less room for growth. And so, you know, that, I think that's part of why the quarterbacks, especially quarterback, which is such a skill position, takes a long time to learn and adjust in the NFL. I think it's a huge advantage when you're not seen as the savior of an organization when you're drafted because it gives you the time to learn and to adapt and to evolve and really step into that role versus being expected to be there on day one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's quite frankly, what's made the Patrick Mahomes thing so amazing is that he had the expectations and he's lived up to him, but he did also get a year to sit behind and watch as well. Same with Aaron Rodgers. Um, same with Russell Wilson. If you look at the elite QBs, Tom Brady's, they all kind of had to uh, prove uh, themselves before they got that opportunity. And I think truly believe Malik Willis uh, has the opportunity to do that based on the footage that I've seen. I hope he adapts. He's got some things to work on, but I do think from a raw talent perspective, this is a guy that can develop into a star in this league. Yeah, absolutely. So the draft is Thursday night. Uh, it'll be the night after you listen to this podcast. So enjoy that. Um, I guess on that note, V, that wraps up this news and notes and stay tuned for a deep dive a little later on. Definitely. I'm looking forward to the deep dive. It'll be fun. Awesome. On that note, Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on up.